Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello Lucy. Hi Alex, how are you? I'm all right. What have you been up to? Um, I haven't been up to a great deal, you know, reading, pottering, that sort of thing. <laughs> I think you, I suspect you have had a more exciting time than me in the past week, is that right? Well, I can't lie, I have. I think I've done something for the very, very first time and almost undoubtedly the last time I won on the Grand National. So is it the first time you've ever put a bet on? No, I've no, I've fluttered before, but I've certainly never won at, at if you please, 66 to 1. Oh. But the reason I think, you know, the reason we're talking about this on, you know, a literary podcast is that I chose my horse simply because it had the name Yates in it. Excellent. It was Noble Yates. And I thought, well, that's, that's it. And thankfully, it was not a horse who slouched towards... Bethlehem, <laughs> was he full of passionate intensity i'm racking my brains now full of passionate intensity um i have to say for quite a lot of the time i thought it was going on runner he's fallen over and, and i missed it uh because they didn't mention him for ages but that apparently is a good sign because that horse is just you know waiting to go so yes I put a fiver on each way at six to six to one I, I'll let you do the maths on that let's just say you know I can't do the maths but I think you've done well out of it yeah um, quite well um now the terrifying thing is of course 10 minutes later I thought to myself well why didn't I put 100 quid on and that of course is how it starts isn't it this is you know next stop absolute dissolution and you know yes ne- next week you'll be asking me if, if you can borrow a tenner that's exactly. Nice. So I've got to, I've got to kind of say no. I have really got to quit while I'm ahead, and not just go around picking horses with with famous writers and expecting them to romp home at sixty sixty one. It is a good way of picking them, it seems. Well, it it, it was once, um, and so we will. But now, horse racing might be something we talk about a bit later. You never know because we're going to be talking about sports, aren't we? So coming up on this week's show. 
The new novel from Julian Barnes sketches a portrait of a teacher whose influence lasts way beyond the final bell. Dinah Birch joins us to explain more. And what does the history of sport throughout the world tell us about different times and cultures? Is it all a case of to the winner the spoils, or should the also-rans take their place in the spotlight? David Goldblatt will be here to discuss playing games. But first, Julian Barnes is back with Elizabeth Finch, which tells the story of a man's relationship with a memorable teacher, not as we often hear from school days, but from the rather more ambiguous world of adult learning. There's also a starring role for a Roman emperor that many of us may have forgotten, Julian the Apostate. Dinah Birch has reviewed the novel and is here to tell us more. Dinah, many thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Just to start with that title, I'm always intrigued by an eponymous novel. It's like a kind of statement of intent that you're going to get a whole personality. But of course, in this case, Elizabeth Finch is herself strikingly unknowable. And this is a novel also full of digression. Tell us a bit about it. That's true. She is unknowable. Um, So it's to some extent a portrait of an enigmatic woman, but it's also a novel that denies the possibility of a portrait that will really convey who she was, why she mattered, even what she did. And that, that I think, is a, a really important strand of thought in the novel. It's, it's a novel, I think, takes many risks... And one of the risks that it takes is that it denies readers' expectations. As you say, you have a title, Elizabeth Finch, so you think that at the end of the novel, you will know all about her, or at least a great many interesting things about her, um, her youth, her experiences, um, um, why she became the teacher that she was, but that isn't necessarily so indeed to a large extent not so at all so we get um rather tantalizing glimpses for instance of her romantic history and we rather expect as readers that we're going to learn more about that you know who she loved what she loved in return but we simply never do that's not the point of the novel and that is a risk for a novelist to take to deny um the reader's appetites in that way But what this is, and again, a risky thing, and not a common thing for for a novelist to undertake, it really is, I think, it's a novel of ideas. It's a novel that that challenges us as readers to think um, and to reflect on the ways in which we think. So it is easy to become exasperated by it because the pleasures that it offers and I think it does offer pleasures are not those that we usually encounter in fiction I mean they're they're not unknown in fiction but I think they're not usual certainly not in contemporary fiction whereas the pleasures that are more commonly provided for us are not there. I like the fact that not only do you not get Elizabeth Finch's um, kind of nothing like her inner thoughts, or as you say, even much 
about her life. But the, the narrator says, uh, at some point, give, gives you a little bit about himself and then says, but this isn't about me. And I thought, I thought, oh, okay, so he's going to be his story at some point. And it isn't. <laughs> he says it again a couple of times and he just goes, it's not my story. Okay. And I, I thought that was really, it, that's also, it's, it's setting it up and saying, no, that's, that's not what we're doing. We're doing something else. And if it's not his story and it's not Elizabeth Finch's story, exactly, we then, of course, sort of think, well, whose story is it? And, and, Diana, you said that it's a novel of ideas, and I suppose that the key question really is what are those ideas? Um, I mean, it does seem to be a sort of defence of a quite austere kind of intellectualism in a way, but there are there are ideas, aren't there? There's an idea, for example, very central to the book about, um, about the foundation of Christianity and what that meant for the world's culture. So you might argue, um, going back to your point, um, Lucy, that it's the story of Julian the Apostate, or at least that he's the vehicle um, for that point that that Alex um, was um, touching on, um, thinking about the origins of Western patterns of thought, um, and specifically um, about the origins of Christianity in its early years. Um, It puts forward... Um, the, the thesis that perhaps Christianity was damaging in ways that, that we have ceased to recognise. Um, but it isn't just an assault on Christianity. It's not simply that. Indeed, it's not simply anything. What it is, it seems to me, um, is an exploration of multiplicities and ambiguities. So it is austere and it is a defence of the life of the mind, But it's not austere in the sense that it is promoting a single approach to that life, to intellectual life. Nor does it argue, and it is a book about argument, nor does it argue that any such single approach would be not only possible, but but would be desirable. It's not arguing that. So the core of Elizabeth Finch's um, a suspicion of, or indeed hostility to Christianity, is that it is among that small family of powerful and influential monotheistic religions. And Elizabeth's argument throughout her teaching is that that kind of single-mindedness, monotheism or, or monocultures or any kind of attempt to unlock the key to history, our personal histories, our cultural histories, our political histories, by pulling out one model, one approach that diminishes us and represses our capacity for freedom um, and for joy. And for all its austerity behind Um, Elizabeth Finch's argument um, and Neil's, um, um, as it were, um, um, promoting that argument. And I do think it's true that behind that is Julian Barnes's commitment to the argument. Behind all that, there is um, a commitment to joy and that seems an odd thing to say of a novel that that, that is, as I think you said, Lucy, in many ways does come over as, as very austere. Um, but, but there is um, a belief that finally um, 
joy and freedom is where we are at our most human. And that, that the, um, as Elizabeth Finch puts it to her pupils, the practice of Christianity, Catholicism, Protestantism, all too easily represses that joy. So there is that kind of positive dimension to the novel, but it does emerge in kind of fragments and glimpses. So it, I'm making it sound more straightforward than it is because it's a novel that constantly qualifies its own argument, circles around itself, asks itself or asks you as the reader, well, does that work? Is that true? Um, perhaps not. Look at it this way. Look at it that way. There's a wonderful image um, which I quote in my review of Julian, who's, who is very hard to know for all sorts of reasons, like a man walking across a stage pursued by differently coloured spotlights. It's a very good expression of, of what the novel is thinking about. How difficult it is to know yourself, to know any individual, and whether it be Elizabeth Finch or Julian Apostate, or to know whether we are right or wrong about our own history and... Um, the argument of the novel, again, it's an argument about um, which Elizabeth Finch keeps coming back, um, um, we're always going to be wrong. And that's part of our intellectual growth, to acknowledge that getting things wrong is inevitable, necessary, and to be accepted. Because a lot of the joy that you mentioned is in this relationship. I mean, the narrator... Neil does find joy in his relationship, entirely platonic, um, you know, teacher-pupil, and then later kind of a friendship uh, with Elizabeth Finch. But I also, I love that slightly ambiguous, odd setting of the adult education class, because here is this class that Elizabeth Finch is teaching in an institute that we don't really know what it is. It's not a school. We're kind of familiar with school day novels and, and relationships between children and their school teachers we don't know why all these disparate adults have been joined together what the course is even for really and I found it a very sort of interestingly ambiguous setup for the novel yes I think that's right and you you could say if you're looking at this novel from a realist perspective well what kind of course is this? I mean, I, I know of no institution that would support a course quite like that that would extend over a whole year and doesn't seem to lead to any kind of examination. Um, and it, it, it is very hard to place. Um, but I think um, what, what Barnes has seized on, this is perhaps what you're thinking, Alex, in, in an educational context, when you are teaching a seminar or a group of any kind, what you do find is a group of individuals come together, find their roles, present themselves to the group. Very often, the, it, um, the, the relationships will form and dissolve. Um, and at the centre of it sits the teacher of a certain kind. And Elizabeth Finch is a charismatic figure. That does come over very clearly. Um, but um, Neil, um, who, who adores her and tells us that it's a very kind of emotional relationship as well as an intellectual relationship. Neil does become aware towards the end of the novel um, when he contacts other students um, 
um, who were members of that group um, after the passage of so many years, that they didn't see it in that way, that there are other ways of, of looking at Elizabeth Finch. One of the students, um, Jeff, is really quite hostile to Elizabeth Finch and points out that she wouldn't get away with that sort of thing nowadays, that it's you know, in some ways um, a model um, for teaching that has become suspect. And that's part of, of what Barnes um, is thinking about. But I, I do think that all of those um, features of the novel are intriguing. And I do think this is a novel that, that intrigues and that lingers in the mind. But they're not really the central point of the novel. And that's where I think it is so exceptional. You know, we find ourselves speculating about Neil, you know, as, as, um, as we've said, we don't really learn much about Neil, his failed barrages, his somewhat doleful career, ending up growing mushrooms. Not that there's anything wrong with mushrooms, but still. Um, we don't really know much about him, his children. We don't learn much about his fellow students. Um, Elizabeth Finch remains sort of, to some extent, unknowable. What's really pushing the novel along is that process of thinking and thinking about thinking. Um, Julian's philosopher brother, Jonathan Barnes, may very well be one of the figures who stands behind this, this novel. I, I, I do think that among um, its, its many appealing features is a defensive philosophy. The abstraction of thought as well as its human context but the human context is not ignored it's a very subtle piece of work quite challenging and as I said um, earlier I think it's it's a book that is very prepared to take risks not everyone is going to love this book I liked it a lot and I find myself thinking about it a great deal um, since um, um um, writing review, finishing the novel, it, it, it does stay with you. I think that that, that that will be true for many readers. I have to say, when, when I read it, I thought, oh, the next, the first thing I've got to do is read it again. Yes. It was, I just thought, there is so much here yeah. that I missed. And you, you mentioned Jonathan Barnes there, and, and not to sort of play the, you know, what Elizabeth Finch herself would no doubt really disapprove of the kind of vulgar business of saying who's who. But there has been a suggestion that Elizabeth Finch may share some traits with yeah. the novelist Anita Bruckner, an art critic Anita yeah. Bruckner, with whom Barnes had a, a long friendship. And uh, there's a very sort of funny little echo uh, of them having lunch together, which is sort of, uh, yeah. you know, it, it, Barnes has written about those lunches with Bruckner and, and pretty much word for word they recur here, which seemed almost like a sort of wink by him to the to the reader. I don't know what, what you felt. I think there may very well be, in fact, I'm sure there is, um, an element of a tribute to Anita Bruckner mm. um, in the book. They, they, they do um, share points in common, their clothes, their hair, you know, all, all sorts of, of things that you can find little kind of points of parallel um, in um, what um, Julia Barnes had said about Bruckner. But I think it really would be a mistake to look at Elizabeth Finch as a sort of portrait of Anita Bruckner. Um, I, don't, mm. I don't think that that is the point of what Julian Barnes is doing. And I think the central reason um, for um, that being a mistake is that um, 
Anita Bruckner was, of course, a very distinguished novelist, um, which Elizabeth Finch is not. And that, I think, is, is a real distinction between the two women, that what we do know about Elizabeth Finch is that she was a passionate and committed teacher. Of course, Anita Bruckner was also a teacher, but there was a further dimension to Anita Bruckner's work, her identity, her disposition, um, um, that, that found expression in um, the creative world, in fiction. Um, she was a very prolific novelist and a novelist of great depth and real interest. Um, so that, 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 I think, makes her in um, an important sense, kind of radically, essentially different from mm. Elizabeth mm. Finch. So I think that it's always tempting to do this, isn't it? To think, I've cracked him. I know what's going on here. You know, this character is based on such and such a person and this character is based on such and such a person. And you can see that this reflects the novelist's, I don't know, trip to Melbourne in 1972. And you can see how it all feeds in. And of course, it's interesting and you learn a lot from that. But I think it can be a distraction. I felt in a way that the, the little bits of Bruckner yeah. that, that Barnes took and put into this novel. And I'm thinking particularly of those moments where uh, they have lunch together and, and Finch slash Bruckner uh, leans over and says, how is that? Disappointing. Uh, and that's the sort of directly, I think he's putting, I felt maybe he was putting in there to sort of as a lure to, to, to make the kind of mistake, the mistake exactly that you're referring to, of, of sort yeah. of luring us into thinking it's a portrait and of course, then saying, hang on, you think you know something and you really don't. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. But again, you know, one of the temptations of, of you know, identifying Elizabeth Finch with Nita Bruckner is that you feel quite pleased with yourself because it's a bit of kind of inside knowledge. You know, you need mm. to know, don't you, about a certain cultural context. But I think... Um, Jenny Mons wanted this novel to be absolutely fully accessible to people who would never make that connection. I mean, why would they, unless you happen to know and have read the reviews or know that Julian Barnes was a friend of Anita Bruckner, know something about Anita Bruckner? It's kind of extraneous information that, of course, does add an extra buzz of interest to reading the novel, but it's by, I would argue by no means essential to what the novel, the work that the novel is doing and, and wants to do. And it can become, I think, you know, a bit of a distraction, you know, tempting to think, oh, this is a novel. It's all about, you know, Nita Bruckner, that circle yeah. and the friendship and the knowing wink. And I think, you know, Julie Bards does that. There, there are some knowing winks, but it's not what the novel is doing. It's not why the novel matters. Diana, I, I must say, you have got me banged to write there, though. I mean, you really have. I am exactly that kind of person who wants to say, yes, well, I've got that. Uh, so that is entirely true. I felt like the whole book was doing that because as soon as you, th it seemed as though a view might be being stated and you either thought, oh, yes, okay, that's it, or, oh, no, that's not it, it would be undercut or it would be looked at from a, another 45 degree yes. angle and they'd say hang on a minute because in the in the middle section which is a, a kind yeah. of essay that Neil produces which he never did produce when he was supposed to um during the course um that the, 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 it's it's put relatively straightforwardly this idea that um that that Christianity kind of 
taking root when Julian the Apostate dies was not necessarily a good thing for society. It's put at one point relatively simply, and just as I was thinking, well, it can't. I mean, that can't be as simple as that. The book says, well, of course, it's not as simple as that. Of course, of course, that's not true. And you go, okay. <laughs> but which is kind of, which is, I mean, in some ways it's frustrating, but it's all, it, it, that's the thing I think that keeps you thinking, do you think, Dinah, that, that, you know, as you said, you keep thinking about it. Absolutely. It's a novel that wants to unsettle you and does unsettle you. You're not allowed to settle down into any one perspective. So various lines of thought, interpretation are offered and seem persuasive, and then they're kind of snatched away or qualified or tempered. It's a novel that that, that promotes, as it were, multiplicity. There's different kinds of angle um, of perception. There's different colours, if you like. Um, I mean, it's not a novel that has a large cast of characters, um, but the characters that there are do show that um, um, central character, the, the, the charismatic Elizabeth, in different lights. The, the, the relatively minor character, for instance, of Christopher, you know, Elizabeth's brother, who is obviously to some extent reacting against what does come to seem like quite a domineering presence in his life. I think you are intended to think if you knew a little bit more about that family dynamic, um, Elizabeth Finch would not look nearly so admirable. Christopher seems to have been quite thoroughly sat upon as a young child in ways that probably was not to his benefit. There's another kind of angle of understanding of um, um, Elizabeth Finch. It's kaleidoscopic from that point of view. And again, that's the point. That is the point. It's a novel that will never accept any single point of view. And that's not comfortable. And also Neil's not terribly reliable because he finds out about three quarters of the way or a bit later that he missed something that was pretty obvious to kind of lots of other people within the group. Um, and also he goes to talk to one when he goes to talk to one of the other students, Anna, and she talks about her relationship with Elizabeth Finch. And you think actually she might well have been quite a bit closer to her than he was. And he's got no idea. Yes. And he's, of course, prides himself, doesn't he, on being the, the one, the kind of, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, sort of chosen one. I just, just wondered if you found, Dinah, a kind of kinship um, between this novel and, and some of the Barnes's other later novels, The Sense of an Ending and The Only Story, which all seem to be this sort of, view from you know a view back when you kind of realized you you thought you were in control of the bits of the story but you really weren't and I was sort of reminded of that but I also thought that there was the kind of cultural sort of omnivorousness of the history of the world in ten and a half chapters and Flaubert's parrot but it, it does seem sort of like a later work rather than an earlier one do you think do you think that's right I think that is absolutely right it is a very Barnes novel I mean for all that it is exceptional in ways that we've discussed it's got that um, tripartite structure um, which which Barnes is very fond of keeps going back to um, um, but also I mean to, to you mentioned the only story it could hardly be a more different novel, but there are points of kinship. You know, that long relation between a man and a woman told from the man's perspective. And also that sense, which I found very moving in The Only Story, of there being an only story which contradicts 
um, what we've been um, describing as the shifting multiplicity of the novel, um, Neil, unsatisfactory and unreliable in many ways, as indeed was the narrator of the only story, but his life is given a kind of shape and a movement um, and a purpose in, in writing that, that um, long piece on um, Julian Niposte that it would otherwise have lacked. His relations with Elizabeth Finch, which, which are not in any sense conventionally romantic, um, turns out to be his only story, but it doesn't lead to a single perspective. It's very subtly balanced, um, but yes, we are in Barnes territory. I think Neil is a very recognisable Barnes character. And also, you know, Barnes's persistent focus on characters who, for um, a whole range of different reasons, you know, don't have resoundingly successful lives, you know, don't, don't shine, um, don't, um, <clears throat> don't find themselves at the top of any tree. I think that's one difference, actually, between Elizabeth Finch and Anita Bruckner, who, of course, towards the end of her life, was very successful and um, won the booker and was much applauded, as, and deservedly so, as a very fine novelist. That one of the points of Elizabeth Finch um, as, as the pivot of, of this novel is that didn't happen. And the public exposure she had was what um, Neil calls the shaming, um, the, a kind of attack um, on her work by a, a group of journalists, readers who choose not to understand, as Elizabeth Finch puts it. So, yes, it's a Barnes novel. It's not entirely characteristic, but then every novel that Barnes writes is different, of course, from those that came before. Um, but, but I think if it were given to you without Barnes's name on the cover, it would not be difficult to guess who had written it. <laughs> I think it's definitely true. Just finally, as a kind of reviewer's fellow feeling here, not an easy book to review, Diana, I wouldn't have thought. Yes, that's true. But then, Alex, do not find every book is one that you think, well, this is not an easy book to review. Yes, I do, actually. <laughs> I do. You're right. I always fall back on that thing that somebody said, well, no real review of a, a novel that would be decent would simply be to copy it out. And that, um, sadly, is the case, but one is not allowed to do that. <laughs> Diana, thank you so much. That was so interesting. I mean, I really did find this a, a fascinating book. And you've just shed more light on it, for which I thank you greatly. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Still to come on the show, what are the real origins of rugby? Why has California been the birthplace of so many sports? David Goldblatt joins us to talk about fun and games. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Hey Festival is back in person, 26th of May to the 5th of June, and the programme is out now at heyfestival.org forward slash Wales. It's set to be a return to remember with more than 500 speakers and performers due to take part. 
As well as launching the best new books, this year's event will feature a vibrant schedule of music and comedy, debates and performances for all ages. Guests will include an all-star Letters Live cast led by Benedict Cumberbatch, alongside speakers such as Stephen Fry, Nicola Sturgeon, Damon Galgott, Bernadine Evaristo, Cressida Cowell, Elif Shafak, Devry Shridhar, Gillian Clark, Lemon Sisse, Kate Rusby, Rose Tremaine, Minnie Driver, Monica Ali, I'm going to carry on because there's more of them, Damien Lewis, Jimmy Page, Corinne Bailey-Ray, David Harewood, David Olashoga, Ian Rankin, Inua Elams, Jacqueline Wilson, Jarvis Cocker, PJ Harvey, and many more. Now, I, if you were listening last week, you will know which one of those many people Alex Clark is going to interview and try and get to go to a tea shop. Did I remember <laughs> that right, Alex? Is that, is that what you want to do with her? Yes, I'm going to take Mini Driver down the road from where I live, which is where Circle of Friends uh, was filmed. Uh, of course, one of her early roles. So I'm very excited to be talking to Mini Driver, who's are lots of my favourite films and not in that list but no less of an excitement Alan Titchmarsh oh yes so I hope you tell me where I'm going wrong with my sweet peas I'm very jealous of that actually um that's going to be brilliant that's that's <laughs> one to watch well we're going to do a live podcast aren't we though we are going to do a live podcast maybe we can get Alan on that to, and you, oh. you can get him to look at your onions <laughs> I've never heard it called that before. Yes, we will have a live podcast uh, on Friday the 3rd of June at 11.30. Um, guests to be announced, excitingly. So uh, so watch this space. I think it, um, com- uh, it comes down to the kind of inducements we can give them, or, or perhaps they can give us. Well, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not at liberty to disclose that right now, Alex, which means I don't know. <laughs> Genuinely more on that later. Listeners, who would you like to hear on the live podcast? <laughs> I'm very excited about the idea of podcasting from a field. I really am. What could possibly go wrong? Nothing. Nothing could, nothing, nothing could absolutely go wrong. Nothing. You can discover the whole programme and the tickets at hayfestival.org forward slash Wales. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now this week we're going to talk to a Tottenham Hotspur fan and before you start shouting at the podcast we will remain strictly neutral. This fan notes that one of the many things fans love about sport is its history and they often know it very well and in some detail. But history in general hasn't loved sport back. David Goldblatt, for he is the Spurs fan as well as the author of several books about sport, He's reviewed a book called Games People Played, A Global History of Sport by Ray Vampliu, and we're delighted that he can join us today to talk it through. David, many thanks for joining us. Lovely to be with you. I'm just going to go straight there. You open your piece by talking about what Spurs fans sing to Chelsea fans, which is quite rude, but kind of on the nail for what we're talking about. Would you, would you like to share with us? Yeah, to the tune of La Donna Mobile, it's shit club, no history, shit club, no history. <laughs> That's actually much more highbrow than I thought. I didn't realise it was too, too bad. <laughs> it's among the least rude things that football fans anywhere sing, I would imagine. Though the kind of great irony um, of the moment is that um, in the last few months, as um, Chelsea FC's intimate relationship with the Putin regime um, and the war in Ukraine has unfolded. Chelsea really have more history than they know what to do with. Yes, they, they probably wish they had a bit less. <laughs> so this is a, a way of an illustration of saying that the, fan, the fans do know the history, um, but the historians, as it were, have sort of ignored sport or, or treated it as unimportant. Why, why do you think this is? It's a really good question, and I've been sort of racking my brains for the last... 20 years um, writing about it. Um, I think there is something deep in English, and I think English rather than British, because I think the situation in Scotland and perhaps Wales and Ireland is different, but certainly in English literary culture, where there has been a division between the aesthetes and the sporty jocks. Um, and um, both have looked down upon and dismissed the other. Um, but of course, the sporty crew have not really been writing a great deal of history or making their way in the world of letters. And those who have done, who have done so, have, I think, partly by personal experience, partly by rejection of the sort of unpleasant and rather narrow range of masculinities that a lot of sport has uh, represented, have steered clear of it, considered it almost you know, with, with a degree of contempt. Um, and I think it actually 
that's its sort of deep roots is my I often think rather strangely about um the opening scenes of Anthony Pohl's um A Dance to the Music of Time where the cricket team uh at the uh, at the school uh bully Widmerpool and Nick Jenkins the narrator um kind of looks on looks on this as just sort of calamitously bad form and indicative you know the tone of the rest of the book which is otherwise one of the most extraordinary surveys of upper class English life in the 20th century is um, almost entirely dismissive, dismissive and silent on the question of sport so I think it partly goes back to that you know the literary wing of the English intelligentsia rejecting the public school ethos and the public school sporting ethos. It is true, isn't it, that, that in novels, as one art form, it's, it may be trended, sports and matches and games always appear as a kind of proxy for other sort of concerns, don't they? Kind of contests between people or, or something like, you know, in um, the go-between, for example, the cricket match in the go-between. They're never actually interested in what's really happening in the sport the sport itself it's only interesting as a kind of um way of, of representing attitudes and relations between people i wonder if that's that's sort of connected to it this kind of lack of interest in the game itself it's really interesting i think it depends on which novelist i mean i think in english letters that's probably true but then there are certainly um American sports writing, be it um, David Foster Wallace on tennis, perhaps, or Don DeLillo on baseball, where there is a really intimate understanding of the internal dynamics of the sport itself. And while, of course, these things remain proxies and symbolic of other matters, the sport itself and the internal sporting dynamic, its aesthetic qualities, um, you know, do register. So I think it depends on the literary sort of tradition that one is that one is looking at. I think it is possible to mm-hmm. write in an interesting fashion about sport, not merely as a proxy. Um, and of course, there's a lot of great journalism that when it rises, you know, to the very highest level is fabulous in its sort of descriptive power of the, you know, balletic, aesthetic and physical qualities of sport. But yeah, most of the time it's functioning as a proxy. I mean, in a way, I don't think that's too much of a problem. You know, in the end, sport is, you know, for playing and for watching. Um, And it's, you know, it's really hard to reproduce the kind of thrills, the adrenaline of that in, in mere words. So I don't think it's too harsh a criticism to say that there hasn't been much of it. Well, in which case, why do we need proper histories of sport written by historians? What what would that what would that add? Then? Uh, that's a different department. It is you know, we, <laughs> history and the novel. We're in we're in very different territory. Why do we need it? I mean, the first thing to say is there's an awful lot of cod um, history out there perpetrated by sports institutions. Uh, at points, sort of just downright mythology and lying. And forgive my um, my old-fashioned love of historical truth, but I just think sometimes you've got to put stuff straight. So to give one example, um, the uh, dominant account of um, the origins of baseball 
um, in the United States that was invented by General Abe Doubleday, a Union uh, Civil War uh, general who invented the game in Cooperstown in upstate New York, where Major League Baseball now have their Hall of Fame. And this does not have a scintilla of truth in it. It is the creation of a um, historical uh, panel set up by Spalding, the great sports goods manufacturer of the late 19th, early 20th century, to demonstrate beyond doubt that baseball could not possibly be descended from the English children's games rounders, but was, of course, an expression <laughs> of, you know, the unique exceptionalism of uh, 19th century America. And one blind man, almost on his deathbed, recalled from 50 years earlier when speaking to the committee that A. Doubleday had invented the sport. And of course, it's complete nonsense, you know, and it, it, it supports a kind of unsustainable and ludicrously narrow ideological count of, uh, of American history and American development more widely. So I think it's really important, you know, to put things straight. You know, the Chinese are currently arguing that they invented football. A new museum in Shanghai has a display to that effect. Because, you know, a game called Su Chu was played under the... Um, you know, the uh, Song and Tang dynasties, and somehow that's football. Whereas, of course, in actual fact, Su Chu had basically died out in the 17th and 18th century. And by the time you get to the 19th century, you've got Chinese folklorists petitioning the... Um, uh, petitioning the... Um, uh, Chinese uh, state, the Chinese emperor, to kind of revive the game. And, of course, it's just not true. You know, if China had industrialised you know, 400 years earlier and spread its, you know, cultural power and influence around the world in the way that which the British Empire did in the 19th century, well, maybe we'd be playing some version of that Chinese game. But meantime, those kinds of claims, just sort of the crudest, most sort of pathetic nationalism. And I'm, I'm against that. So I think we need to put the record straight. Um, I think there's a more positive argument, though, that you know, quite simply, an enormous amount of human time, energy and creativity has been, in, been put into playing or following sport over the last 150 years. Mm. It's just kind of inconceivable to have a kind of plausible account of any culture anywhere in the world without attending to who played and what they played and why they played. And I think it's really important to remember sport in the end is play. And if play is not a kind of really profound human universal that reaches really deep into who and what we are as human beings, then frankly, I don't know what is. I mean, as Eduardo Galeano, the great Uruguayan uh, writer, uh, put it, you know, show me how you play and I'll tell you who you are. And I myself find it actually just impossible not to interpret the history of pretty much everywhere through who is playing and, of course, who isn't playing, who's in and who's out. Yeah, we talked about uh, games on the podcast a while ago. I know it's a slightly different thing, but it's still the idea of play. It's something you don't have to do, um, which which is which is, as you say, hugely indicative of exactly who's doing it when are they doing it why are they doing it and and who's not doing it and what meanings they give to it you know because in the end with with sports and with games i mean there is you know uh, uh, all sorts of tactile and aesthetic and 
physical kind of visceral pleasures. But more than that, all of these things are invested with such a depth of meaning. Um, you know, I mean, that's what the football fans are chanting when they, when they say, you know, they criticise Chelsea for having no history. There is a recognition there in the popular culture of sport is that history, the accumulation of ritual of doing the same thing in the same place in the same way, you know, uh, as with so many things in life, is what gives purpose, structure and meaning. That particular thing, what, what um, football fans chant at each other, and, and, you know, there are always these sort of edgy moments, insults uh, between football fans and they're always about a sort of pedigree and a belonging and of course all football clubs have their different histories but do you think in that case it's it's a kind of I don't know a sort of self-hating thing in a way because the fact is modern football no club has history because it's changed so enormously the Premier League is not a piece of history it's it's something that's newly created the you know mercantilized uh, you know merchandise heavy game that you know is is not that doesn't have history i think that both things are true you know one could make the case that you know the, the modern premier league is completely deracinated separated from its historical roots and communities you know a global spectacle uh, and no more. And yet at the same time, it seems to me that every time I turn on the radio or, or watch the television, I see something of the last 150 years of English history deeply, profoundly embedded in, um, in what one is experiencing. I mean, almost no institutions in uh, English society in any way, have the kind of geographical fixity and persistence of football clubs. 75%, I think, of English football league clubs are still in the same place that they were over 100 years ago. I mean, if you looked at the, uh, the FTSE, for example, you wouldn't find that um, in the geography of, um, of British industry and British corporations. Um, I mean, at the same time, you know, when I listen to football conversations and you hear people including you know foreign players who've come to the Premier League recently referring to the uh, coach as the gaffer bless <laughs> like, well, Arsene Wenger and Pep Guardiola are many fabulous things but they are not <laughs> the gaffer you know the gaffer is is you know is the foreman on a building site or in a kind of you know factory with lathes in it at some point in the 1950s i mean there is this extraordinary <laughs> romantic linguistic association with the lost worlds of industrial working class england i mean it's the same when we talk about players wages i don't know about you but when i hear wages i'm going you know, a 10-bob note rolled up inside a, a brown envelope that you get on a Friday afternoon. Mm. Football, football players do not earn wages. At best, we can say they earn salaries, and many of them have incredibly exotic forms of payment involving loans and a dubious offshore uh, tax avoidance schemes. 
Yeah, and of course they do something wrong, like going out, you know, to a to a nightclub at all hours the night before an important match, and their wages get docked, which never rings true either. The kind of idea of the sort of two weeks' wages, which obviously doesn't register them in the slightest. No, they probably didn't notice. <laughs> no, it will precisely. There is, of course, an undercurrent here, Lucy, which I'm just going to bring to the surface, which is I can't be very sort of cocky with David at the minute because he is a Spurs fan and I'm an Arsenal fan. And we messed it up terribly at the weekend and now we're neck and neck but we've absolutely given away the advantage so (laughs) David and I are kind of in a sort of daggers drawn you know an unspoken standoff (laughs) I suppose in which I am the cowed party let's put it like that well that's true except my many many years of following Tottenham Hotspurs have made me very, very wary of crowing about anything to anybody <laughs> at any point in the season. Uh, I'm afraid there have been too many, too many reversals of fortune uh, for me to for me to go there. So honestly, Alex, you're you're safe from uh, you're safe from me right now. I think we're both very tense, basically. That's the bottom. We're both very tense. I, I'll be the referee anyway. <laughs> Calm down, everyone, and let's talk sorry, about the book. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> it's fine. I was going to say, um, David, how... Because you were saying that the, that the you can quite easily trace and sort of feel the, the, the history of, let's say, English football back about 150 years. How how far back does this book go and, and what's the scope? Because it's a huge subject. It's, it's what's the subtitle? It's a global history of sport, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it's, it covers everything, um, which is both its strength and its weakness. And I, I, I take my hat off um, to Ray Van Plew that he managed to keep it to a manageable length because to, I myself have toyed with the idea of writing a global history of sport that would span, you know, millennia, continents, um, you know, profound transformations in social structure um, and all the many kind of economic, political, anthropological and geographical kind of paths that one could go down. And I think he's done a magnificent job to keep it to a reasonable sort of 400 pages. And he really does, albeit at speed, you know, cover enormous amount of territory. So we have, you know, sporting games in ancient China, in Mesoamerica, in the Roman Empire, amongst indigenous peoples. We have the emergence of sport in early modern Europe. We have the whole process of codification, rationalization and bureaucratization um, under the, you know, um, intersecting industrial and political and social revolutions of the 19th century. Um, and we have a pretty good global spread of, you know, sports that are distinct and special in certain parts of the world. Um, so he really covers the ground ter- terrifically well, geographically and chronologically. And you have you have a few exceptions and grumbles, don't you? There's no skateboarding. Um, and I mean, there, there are bound to be some things, there are bound to be something missing. Isn't I mean, there? I think, you know, one is... This is the reviewer's yeah. job, isn't it? Is is to say, well, you didn't do that. But I love the I love the way you pointed out that that you'd like to know more about why so many things started off in California. I mean, I immediately thought, well, it's nice weather, so everyone goes outside. But it's probably more complicated than that. Well, there's a lot of nice weather in lots of bits. California, lovely as the weather is, has no monopoly on it, and you That's know some true. of it, some of its kind of sporting inventions like uh, mountain biking you know, are coming out of Marin County, north of San Francisco, which, you know, 
it's, it can be pretty rainy and pretty grim and pretty cloudy. So not everywhere is, is Venice Beach. I mean, I thought the Californian, I was surprised not to hear a little more because it's, you know, the home of skateboarding. It's where beach volleyball um, is invented. It's where mountain biking is invented. Um, you know, so that just for one little small corner of the world is a pretty impressive, you know, roster of invention. Similarly, skateboarding, um, you know, is um, extraordinarily popular. I mean, I think um, we've, you know, one forgets just how much skateboarding is going on um, around the world. And I like it that it such a, remains such a kind of grassroots, grungy um, you know, version of the sort of sporting impulse. So these are just sort of personal preferences. I mean, I'm sure, you know, given how much has been squeezed into the book, we can forgive the author his sins, sins of omission. Well, tell me this, is there any hurling in it? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, no book like this could get anywhere without covering um, Irish nationalism and the Gaelic Athletic Association which is an extraordinary... I, I have to ask, because where I live in Ireland, I mean, it's all about the hurling and the camogie. Yeah, no, absolutely. He does. I mean, I think this is one of the areas where sports historians, and I should emphasise this, that, you know, Ray's book here is built on the shoulders of lots of other people's work. And, um, you know, given where we began this conversation, that historians have, you know, traditionally ignored sport, um, this book is only possible because in the last 20 or 30 years, a new generation of sports historians who kind of had the nerve in their own careers to go against the grain, to study, study an area that many of their colleagues in history departments would have looked down upon, um, had the kind of chutzpah and the courage to follow their nose and go and write this stuff up. And there's a lot of great work that's been done on the GAA and, uh, and the history of Irish sport, as well as many of the other topics. So that is a, a richly researched area in the last 20 years, and he's made good use of it. I mean, this might be too, too broad a question to ask, but is it, is it kind of positive? Is it celebrating what sport has meant to people and how it can bring them together, despite, as you say, there are many there's many exclusions and kind of um, unpleasant aspects of who's allowed to play and who isn't. I mean, I think as with many things, I say this myself as a sports historian, the more you know about this, how the sausage is made, often the less appetising it appears when you actually come <laughs> to dine upon it. Um, and it's difficult not to go a little bit there um, when you've studied sports so much. But I do think he makes a really good stab at thinking about why did people enjoy this? Why did this matter? Why was this fun? Why was this exhilarating? Um, so I think he has a reasonable, a reasonable stab at that and keeps in mind the, you know, unifying, um, you know, communal, communitarian dimensions of sport. And I think, you know, sport has also been, and this relates to, you know, we keep coming back to this issue about who's been excluded over the years and certainly you know the modern the sport that is invented in the 19th century is you know overwhelmingly for upper class straight white men and the last 150 years of sport can be seen as a you know Raymond Williams style long revolution in which everyone who's been excluded has been banging on the door and saying actually why can't we play you know you mouth you you take on notions of universalism 
um, in your des descriptions and aspirations for sport, and yet we've all been excluded. And some of the kind of most important symbolic, ex um, you know, symbolic advances for marginalised and excluded social groups have been through the medium of sport. And I think um, there's a lot of that material, you know, be it gender, sexuality, um, race, uh, minor and oppressed uh, nationalities, all variety of minorities. I think um, a good job has been done in, uh, in this book at highlighting that without in any way uh, undermining or undercutting how exclusionary sport has and can continue to be. Van Plew notes, and, and you talk about this as well, that, that uh, writing about sport often or even generally is a history of the winners. Do you think that we that we need a history of the losers and the also runs, which is which is something that he mentions as well? I love that bit when it, of the book because it was sort of in the back of my mind as I read it, and um, you know, often in my own work, you know, you end up focusing on the winners and the champions and the exceptional, but um, the reality of sport, and I say this not only as Tottenham Hotspur supporters, but as a Bristol Rovers supporter. I've lived in Bristol for nearly 20 years now. Bristol Rovers are like 500 metres from my front door. So they're definitely my local squeeze. And I can assure you there's been an awful lot more drawing and losing over those 20 years than anything else. And yet, you know, I keep on going back for more. So I think um, there's absolutely a bigger space um, in sports history for the marginal, the unsuccessful, and above all, to understand why we keep kind of, despite all of that, keep going back for more. A question to you, David, and I mean, this is this is genuinely, there's no side to this, it's not Tottenham Hotspur related, but going to both of those football teams, do you actually slightly enjoy going to the lower league football more? I say that because, frankly, I do. I, I kind of like standing up at a ground and having a cup of coffee that costs... 60p or whatever yeah i enormously enjoy um going to see lower league football and going to see bristol rovers i mean it's something that makes me feel part of bristol in a way that almost mm. nothing else does um it's been a place where i've kind of learned um about you know what bristol is is all about or at least one side of it i love its idiosyncrasies and the fact that you know I often find myself next to um, uh, a woman who has one chant, which is come on Rovers, score a goal. And she... Um, it's nice and clear, clear and directional. Yeah, I hear her about, you know, there's one, she all sits in the same stand. And when I go to that stand, she's almost always there. And few things give me more pleasure, actually, than like, okay all's all right with the world you know um I love the fact that at Bristol Rovers the away fans are allotted the only terrace in the um stadium that has no roof <laughs> isn't that cruel you want them being so comfortable would isn't you? that cruel and I particularly enjoy it on a Thursday evening when you know those that poor coach load from Carlisle or Barrow have done the entire length of the M6 and a good chunk of the M5, and now they have to stand in the rain and watch their side lose to Bristol Rovers. And there's a kind of almost sort of medieval kind of cruelty um, 
about it. And they do it on a wet Tuesday night in Bristol. The answer is generally no. Exactly. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is that what you both enjoy is the medieval cruelty and the fact that the tea costs 60p. <laughs> Well, I'm going to call time on this. Blow your whistle. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm reluctantly blow my whistle. Um, uh, Arsenal and Tottenham are, uh, I hear, absolutely equal at the moment, and that's a good state of affairs. And um, th- thank you so much, David, for talking to us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. time for this week. Our thanks go to Dinah Birch and David Goldblatt. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Sophia Franklin. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.